the truth of the core stuff of the gospel. So I'm going to take you on a little tour to have a look at some of these places. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, the angel said to the women, come and see the place where he lay. Because when you come and see it, it'll do something for you. When uh, Peter and John ran to the tomb and they looked in, that was enough to believe. So I'm going to invite you to come and see. Because we went and saw. And many of you won't have the opportunity to go and see, so I'm going to bring you um, the photos from my, my iPhone. So, the first element of the core stuff of the Christian faith is, does God exist? And uh, so, we went to a garden on our first day there, which um, plants, trees and shrubs just from biblical times. And it's very lush there, and you can look over to uh, just the land behind where they haven't been treating the land the way that it's supposed to be, and it's very barren and stark. And so you can very clearly contrast the difference between doing it the way the Creator intended it to be and not doing it the way the Creator intended it to be. There's this plant here that I'm pointing to. It's called hyssop. And uh, it just grows like a weed there. And if you were sick, had a tummy bug or a mouth ulcer or something like that, you could just grab some hyssop and it's like a medicine. It's high in anesthetic, antiseptic, and uh, it's just tasty as well to add to your food. And there it is. In the world that God made, we had everything we need, the scripture says, in that garden. So there's God's way or there's our way. And when you stop to think about the way that uh, we have many indicators pointing towards the existence of God, all religions have back behind them some echo, some memory of a creator somewhere. After that, the story gets a bit messed up. But all religions point to God, science points to God, history points to God. Our experiences that we have as human beings points us in the same direction. When it's all pointing in the same direction, we have to pay attention to that. Yes, there is a God, supreme being of the universe. That's the first part of the core stuff. Are we clicking? What about the Bible then? Uh, that's the next part of the stuff how do we know that's reliable well you know you can go to the places where the bible was reliably copied from generation to generation so that we can be sure that what we have here is what was originally written this is the caves at Qumran where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in 1948 and uh, there's another cave they know they have found more scrolls yet that uh, they have yet to release to the public and um, so the scrolls were taken from there um, and right next to the Qumran caves is the town of Qumran. During Jesus' time, the Essene community were there and their sole job was to copy ancient text and copy it reliably. They were the printers or the photocopiers of their day. And uh, they had this room, the scriptorium, where the copying, the faithful copying of the scriptures was done. And you can walk into the scriptorium where all that happened. It's kind of amazing to me. This scripture that I hold so dear, and there I am walking there in that room. That's my daughter, and uh, she's checking it out. It's one of those places that I think, how long can this be open that you can actually walk into? So they would lay the scrolls uh, out like this and copy them, and they would look something like that. And many of the actual Dead Sea Scrolls are now housed in 
this place, the, um, the Shrine of the Book, uh, but also many universities around Israel and around the world. And you can go and literally look at these texts. And there's no photography allowed in there, so I don't really know how this photo um, happened. But it was pretty good <laughs> looking at these texts and knowing that what you were looking at, you could see the stitching and you knew this wasn't a photocopy of it. This was the real thing. And looking closely at some of these texts, you knew that perhaps... The, one of the uh, people who was looking, their eyes were laid on this text while it was being copied. One of those people might have been John the Baptist who grew up in the Judean desert right around Qumran. And uh, quite likely that his lifestyle came from the tough existence of the Qumran people. And so he could well have visited there and uh, had a look at this scroll and then my eyeballs are looking at exactly the same one 2,000 years later. It's amazing to think. So you can check out uh, the process by which we can be sure the Bible is actually reliable. Well, the next element of the core stuff is the sin of the world. And uh, that's important to think about. Sometimes we think of it in cartoon version. Oh, yeah, it separates us from God. But, you know, how bad is it really? Well, it, it's pretty bad. It separates us from God. It, it creates a problem. And nothing we can do from our side of this great divide is going to be good enough because we're sinners. We, we fall short. That's the nature of us. We can't do it. How bad is that? Well, it's like a rocket ship trying to approach the sun. Yes, that triangle is my great rendition of a rocket ship. Trying to approach the sun. Sooner or later, what happens to it? It'll burn up. And us trying to approach God, the white-hot purity of God's holiness, what's going to happen to us? How can we possibly hope for heaven with our sinfulness? And sin is essentially rejecting God. It's despising God. It's saying, well, thanks very much, but I'd rather do things my way, thanks very much, God, not your way. Think how serious that is. Think who you're going up against. And so, think where this leads. We visited the chamber of the Holocaust. This is selfishness upon selfishness. The Holocaust came about because people said, we will create an Aryan race. We will be our own gods. And with the will to terror, we will create human beings to be the top of everything. And we'll get rid of those weak ones who are weak because they believe in God. So Jews, Christians, other religious believers were put to the gas chambers. That's what happens. That's the inevitable road when humans think that we are the pinnacle of all things. Okay, so maybe we're not that bad. We don't, we don't send people to the gas chamber, but turn the volume up on this one. This is the Dead Sea. Spectacular, and people come to bar and rub the oily salt and mud on their skin, which is, can help some skin conditions. Uh, it's about one-third salt, and uh, that makes it denser than humans, so it squishes humans up and we float much higher on that water and it's an uh, it's interesting place to come, the lowest land place on earth. But the big problem in this water remains, the sea's dead. No fish can uh, survive in it and um, only uh, no plants can live in that sea as well. So it's a pretty dead sea. Just like us, we might look fine on the outside and we treat the symptoms of our disease with fun and 
maybe uh, self-righteous causes that we think are good, but um, the big problem actually still remains. We're dead on the inside spiritually. We turned away from God to our, towards ourselves, uh, make ourselves the boss, and selfishness is what ruins us and separates us from God, and it endangers our eternal lives as well. So in the same way as it would be fatal to pretend there's no problem with this seed, it's also fatal to pretend there's no problem with our sin. We have to face it, face the big problem as it really is. On weekends, the people around the Dead Sea come and play. But that water will kill you. We don't play with our sin. That'll kill you. It's a big problem. And it requires a big solution as well, which is what the Christmas story is the beginning of. We have all the prophets, up to 300 prophecies pointing in the same direction, telling us about what the Messiah is going to do. And then at Christmas, that starts to happen. God becomes one of us. We think of that in cartoon ways, but we can go and check out the scene of where that happened. And there in Bethlehem, under a church, down underneath, you can go to the very spot where God in the flesh drew his first breath of oxygen in human form. You can reach in and touch the stone if you like. It's breathtaking place. And then just right next to it, to the side, is the place where the manger was. And this very location has been preserved and uh, it's on a hill and not far from there you can look over and just see even to this day shepherds tending their flocks on the fields and we know where jesus grew up this in the background is nazareth and uh, so not far from there is the town that i'm standing in which is called sepphoris which was being built in the time that jesus was growing up and of course jesus dad was joseph a builder and it's very likely that he would have uh, been building in Zephyrus, may have laid some of those stones that you're looking at right there. And as Jesus grew up in the family household, he and his brothers would have helped to build alongside Joseph. It's quite likely, probable in fact, that Jesus was at work in Zephyrus and where that little house was. You see still some of the mosaic work that was done in that time and it's exquisite work. It's not just rough shot, it's really good craftsmanship. And uh, also in Sepphoris, we see uh, this place, which is a Roman theatre. And Jesus is the only person in the Bible to use the word hypocrite, which simply means actor. It comes straight from the theatre. Another clue that perhaps this is where Jesus worked. So we know where Jesus uh, lived in Nazareth and perhaps worked. And we can uh, walk on the very stones that Jesus walked on. And it's pretty amazing. And some of those stones we know for sure that Jesus walked on that spot because they're a main thoroughfare into uh, the temple, for example. Uh, so we can see where Jesus was baptised. Go and have a look at the location. This isn't just a cartoon. This is the real place. And my daughter is dipping her feet in it. And some of you might think, well, it's not a very big uh, Jordan River. Uh, at this point, at this time of year, it's not. In fact, uh, Israel is experiencing a drought at the moment. But in 2012, the flood water was that high. So you can see that the, uh, the water level can vary quite a bit. But that was the location where Jesus was baptised. What about where Jesus was tempted? Yeah, we can go there and have a look too. 
is the kind of uh, hills of the Judean desert. And uh, there's one area where they've built kind of a monastery there. And this is called the Stone of Temptation, where it's believed that Jesus prayed. Um, but somewhere in those hills, it's very dry, very stony, uh, is where Jesus was for 40 days and 40 nights, being tempted by the devil to do things his way instead of God's way. But Jesus stood firm, as we know. You can go to Capernaum. Once Jesus started his public ministry, uh, he moved to Capernaum. And this is Simon Peter's mother-in-law's house. And uh, the structure above it is a church that's been built carefully over the top, to, suspended over the top of uh, this house, with a glass floor so that you can peer down into uh, the house. And they know for sure that this is Peter's um, mother-in-law's house. Um, this is Capernaum, so from the same building, looking out the window, uh, those black stones are the stones of Capernaum in Jesus' day. Jesus had a house somewhere in there. Unfortunately, you don't know which one that was. Uh, it was probably the one that's referred to in the Bible when uh, the paralytic man was lowered through the roof. It was probably Jesus' house. Uh, and uh, the synagogue that you can see in the background built with a white stone, uh, that's the synagogue that was built there after the time of Jesus, but on the foundations of the synagogue in which Jesus preached and healed people and that black stone is the foundation so we we wanted to touch where Jesus was uh, and check it out but the location verifies what's in the text this is Magdala the synagogue there where Mary Magdalene came from and uh, Jesus um, very probably walked on those very mosaics uh, that you can see there that's from that very time it's only been excavated in the last, uh, within the last decade uh, and an extraordinary place to, to visit again. So what about Jesus' teaching? Another one of the core stuff of the Christian faith. Uh, this is where the Sermon on the Mount took place and Jesus explained some of the finer detail about what's in your heart and you need to love God and love people and in this way you will fulfil the law and the prophets. And uh, so it's kind of hard from that location to uh, get a look at the flat place, the level place that overlooks the Sea of Galilee. But there it is, just as described in the New Testament. This is a cistern in um, Cana where water was drawn to fill the jars that Jesus turned the water into wine. This is the top of the Palm Sunday Road when Jesus came down into Jerusalem riding on a donkey colt, just as the prophet Zechariah Prophesied. Now, Zechariah is buried in the tomb of the prophets, which sits at the very top of the Palm Sunday Road. The very prophet who prophesied 400 years earlier that the king of Israel would come on a donkey colt riding down that road, sure enough, it's exactly what happened. Well, what about communion when we celebrate the, the Last Supper and Jesus is breaking bread? Well, you can go to that place too. Now, I have to tell you, this room is the upper room, but it's the third building built on that location. So it's the airspace of the upper room, but every time they built a building there, they made sure that it was two-storey so that they could remember the location of the upper room where Jesus celebrated the Last Supper. And then Jesus uh, left that place and went to the Garden of Gethsemane where he prayed. And yes, you can go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Easy walk, 
from the upper room. And uh, it's still an olive grove, just as it was in Jesus' day. And that building behind that you can see is the Church of All Nations. And they have left a bare basalt section at the front of the church that you can go and pray and be aware that you are praying on the very stones where Jesus prayed and said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And I have to tell you, this is where I went to tears at this point, just being aware of the sweat that dropped like drops of blood uh, as Jesus was contemplating what was coming his way the next day, the sin of the world that he would have to bear. And just to the right of it, there are other bits of stone that are exposed in that church that um, you know, people can make contact with and remember that agony that Jesus was in. And then he's marched back across the Valley Kidron and up these very steps, these exact steps, into uh, the high priest's house where Jesus was held and interrogated. And then he went to uh, the Sanhedrin and then to Pilate and Herod and back to Pilate in these various trials before Pilate had Jesus flogged. You can see here some of the groove lines on this pavement. This is the lithostratos. And uh, at first, archaeologists thought, well, maybe these are wagon tracks, you know, over time. Uh, wagons and chariots might have put these grooves into that pavement. But as you can see, they're much too regular for that. This is probably grooves put into that pavement so that when there was so much blood, the soldiers wouldn't lose their footing. It would help them keep their grip. This is quite surely the place where Jesus was flogged. A bloody scene, and then he was taken to Golgotha, where he was crucified. Now, there are three possible locations for Golgotha. One is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, uh, which um, Constantine's mother in the 4th century identified as uh, the place with her excursion. But there was another location that w had been buried under dirt, which has now been excavated, which uh, has a lot going for it, archaeologically speaking. It was only uh, revealed in the early 1900s. And that's the one that we'll go and have a look at. Uh, and there is a third location, which still is under dirt on Olivet. But this one, uh, from an archaeological point of view, gives you a fair idea if it's not the exact place where Jesus drew our sin onto his own body on the cross so that we might be clean in God's sight, then it's a location that lines up very well. This is uh, the location outside the walls of Jerusalem, old Jerusalem, and uh, as you pan across, you can see where those buses are parked. And just in front of that cliff face is likely where Jesus died. He wasn't killed on a hill. He was killed at a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. Can you see it? This was under dirt until uh, around about the turn of the 18th, 19th century. And then Jesus would have been taken from that cross and carried by Joseph of Arimathea along a pathway along the front to a garden just, as you can see, very nearby. And if we walk around that corner, uh, imagine carrying the body. Um, if we click, here we go. It's not far to find a tomb 
as described in the Bible, which was dug into the wall of rock. And this is the place. Would you like to come and have a look? Come and see where he lay. Now there's a, a little fence there so that people don't go over and jump up and down on the spot. <laughs> the place of the resurrection. And it's on the right, just as described in uh, Mark chapter uh, 16. We read it earlier and you probably missed this little bit of description. Um, in verse 6, don't be alarmed. No, in verse 5. Going into the tomb, they saw a young man in a white robe seated on the right side and were startled. As you can see, we've gone into the tomb and the place where Jesus was raised is on the right side. This is unusual for tombs in, uh, in Israel. Normally, you would walk in the front entrance and the burial places would be in front of you. But this one, you walk in and there it is on the side, as described. And you can go and have a look. I don't know if you can quite make that out, but on the far end of the place where the body was laid, there's a little extra bit dug out of the wall, which indicates that who was laid there was a bit taller than what was originally planned for, which indicates this is a borrowed tomb. And because this is the only place where the body can be laid, and there are two other potential places, but they haven't been finished, this indicates that it's a new tomb also as prophesied. So there it is. The location lines up with the eyewitness accounts that we have in the scripture. And we can look at what the best historians of the last few centuries have had to say. And the top legal minds have had to say about the resurrection. And we can be convinced beyond reasonable doubt that the resurrection is a historical fact not just a matter of myth and legend. We have particular people named, we have particular places named, we have particular times named, and the stories of the resurrection began in the place of the said resurrection. This is unusual. If you wanted to start a rumour about a place, well, someone who wasn't there would start the rumour. Because the people who actually were there you can't start a false rumour because they were actually there. And this is where the story of the resurrection has come from and is historically reliable. Another way of putting it, as John Dixon did in one of his books, is to say that there is a resurrection-shaped dent in the historical record, more than enough to verify that that's what happened. But this is quite likely the place where it happened. So then as we read in Luke chapter 24, Jesus joined some disciples on the road from Jerusalem, which I'm pointing to behind, up on that hill, to Emmaus, which is where we're standing overlooking. You can see it's not desert countryside. This is very lush, full of life countryside. And Jesus walks across there. It's not a far walk. It's not too far for the disciples to run back after Jesus disappears from their sight and join the disciples later that night. So Emmaus is a location that lines up as well. Well, what about the Ascension? Yes, you can go to the Chapel of the Ascension where the place where Jesus last stood in that physical form has been preserved and you can go and touch it. The location bears out the eyewitness accounts. 
And then for, uh, at the time of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes. And we think of that perhaps in cartoon terms. But again, you can go back to the upper room and into that place and be in the space where the Holy Spirit descended on those disciples in that first way in Pentecost. And people started to follow Jesus even before this happened. We can go to the places of one of my favourite verses of the Bible where Matthew follows Jesus. This is back in Capernaum. And in Capernaum, Jesus, uh, Matthew rather, wouldn't have gone to the synagogue. He was a tax collector. He knew he was a traitor to his own people. Uh, but he would have been just around from here in the main thoroughfare between Capernaum and the Sea of Galilee, which you can see in the background. And he would have been sitting somewhere in that area with his tax collector's booth. And Jesus comes up to him. And there's a whole crowd around him. And he looks at the despised tax collector in the crowd, still sitting at his tax collector's booth, and says the fatal words, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. The transformation that happens in that one verse. Uh, I'm not going to cry today. I often do. And then you think of Peter, just uh, around a little bit along the coast. Uh, Peter, who had denied Jesus when Jesus had been arrested. Three times he denied Jesus. And then they meet back at this place. This is on the shore. This is uh, Mensa Christi, is the table of Christ. And it's a place where Jesus reinstates Peter. He says to him three times, I know you don't feel like you're worthy to be my disciple, but tell me this. Do you love me more than these? He uses the word agape. Do you love with this highest form of love more than these? And Peter says, Lord, uh, you know I'm your friend. He doesn't use agape, he uses philo. It means friendship. It's not the high love, it's just mates. Okay, feed my sheep. Good enough. He knows Peter's still feeling unworthy, so he says, well, do you agape me? He dropped off the more than these parts. He knows Peter has been humbled. So do you agape me? And Peter says, I, I feel you. You know we're mates. Can't bring himself to make any grandiose declarations. So Jesus says, feed my lambs. The third time Jesus says to Peter, Peter, are you my mate? Are we friends? Not this high, not this high, just this high. I know it's a broken down, crazy kind of friendship, but is it real? And that's why Peter's upset because the third time Jesus is just questioning the friendship. So Peter is upset and says, Lord, you know everything. You at least know that we're mates. We're friends. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. Some of you might be sitting here thinking, I'm, I'm not worthy of following Jesus. I've done so many bad things and my love kind of goes like a roller coaster. Sometimes I'm, yeah, Lord, and then I'm like, oh, I don't know. I can't be of any service to you. Is the friendship real? Then yes, you can. Follow me. 
And so there we are at the beach where Jesus reinstates Peter and literally there we are. This is the whole touring party of people who follow Jesus. People just like you, just like me, faltering, stumbling steps. And speaking of stumbling steps, one of our party broke her leg on the first day of the tour. Uh, she was walking at Caesarea Maritima, an amazing archaeological site, and she rolled her ankle and broke it. And then that night, we met up at the Sea of Galilee at the hotel. She couldn't travel for the next few days. So she sat by the Sea of, the Gal of Galilee, and she wrote on her cast, as you can see there, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And she's agonizing over the fact that she'd gone to all this trouble to come and visit Israel, and then <laughs> breaks her ankle. She can't see all the sights. And then she's sitting there quietly. And the Spirit of God reveals to her, deeply at a heartfelt level, says, it's just history. The important thing is I'm with you here and now. So a few days later, she gets a taxi and she joins up with us in Jerusalem. And we make sure that she can see the place she most wanted to see is Gethsemane. Not my will, but yours be done. She sees that. The next day, she's able to go and have a look at the site of the resurrection. And it's kind of awkward to get into the little, you know, uh, tomb area. And then as she turns, having looked at it and realising it's empty, of course, Jesus isn't there. He rose. She sees these words written on the door as you go out. He's not here, for he is risen. And the very next thing that that verse says is, tell my disciples to go to where? Galilee, and there you will find me, which is exactly what had happened to her. She found him, not in these sites, but in Galilee. And the people at the tomb encourage you, you won't find Jesus here, you'll find him in your Galilee, where you go following him. And there we are at the airport, getting ready to go, and there's my home uh, in that picture there. That's my Galilee, place where I live, where I work, where I visit, where I do my uh, travelling around and here I am today in the Galilee of St Stephen's Presbyterian Church. There is where you will find him. And so here we are, we've done our CSI. Is God real? Yeah, absolutely. Is the Bible reliable? For sure. Is sin really a problem? Yes, you can go places and check these things out for yourself. Well, what about the solution, the grand solution of the gospel? Yes, you can go to the place where Jesus was born and the place lines up with the eyewitness accounts. And you can go to the place where Jesus taught us to love God and love others and you can go to the place where Jesus died and took our sin on his own body on the cross and you can go to the place you can come and see where he rose from the dead you can go to the place where he ascended into heaven and then descended to fill his people and more importantly you can go to your galilee and follow him in the present day it's not just a matter of come and see it's a matter of then go and tell and having done the crime scene investigation i can tell you you might not be able to go and visit these places, but what you do have in your hand is these eyewitnesses' accounts. And the locations line up precisely with the eyewitness accounts. And these things that you have in your hand are written 
Not just so that you can say, oh, that's interesting, I guess it's true. But that you might trust him. And in trusting him, you might have, that you might come to life based on the core stuff that he has most surely done for us. Let's pray. went and we saw that the places are consistent with the eyewitness accounts. Those who saw the events in person have recorded them faithfully for us. And we have in our hands a reliable report so that we might know and that we might trust the Lord Jesus and receive his life in us, transforming us from glory to glory, that we might move from strength to strength and be more and more like him as the days go by. Lord, we pray for our broken, fallen world. We pray that more people's eyes might be opened, that you might reveal yourself as you did for that lady on the Sea of Galilee. You might reveal yourself wherever we are, that people might find you and have that life transformation. We pray this in your strong name. Amen.